You're listening to Errol Parker and Clancy Overall, editors of the Batuta Advocate on Desert Rock FM. Welcome back to the Batuta Advocate radio show, recording live here in the Diamantina. We, uh, you know, we send our condolences down south. The majority of the country remains in lockdown. It wasn't a race. It's never been a race. Yeah, I guess it was a race to close borders, and that's about all we've been racing for. But, you know, the show goes on. Queensland, you know, the north rises in the ashes. There's an Olympics coming to uh, Brisbane that no one kind of passed through like a ripple in the ocean. But that's pretty good news. You still go to the pub in all of Queensland. And, uh, yeah, Diamantina Shire is all right. We did get rocked by one grey nomad came through with a cough. Errol, editor-at-large of the Batuta Advocate, was exposed to that. So he's a close contact. He's at home. He's not here today. Today with me is um, a prominent Australian writer, author, memoirist, journalist, who's just released a book, and we're going to be talking about that and more. I'd like to welcome to the show the Jacaranda Queen, Bridie Jabor. Thank you for joining us. (laughs) What a pleasure to be here in your beautiful part of the world. Now, I said that right, Jabor. That's the pronunciation of your last name. You've said it wrong both ways. <laughs> Jabor? It's Jabar. Jabar. In Grafton. In Grafton. But the original pronunciation, the Lebanese pronunciation, and the one that I use now is Jabor. Okay. But I respond to Bridie Jabor all the time when I'm back home. Yeah, yeah. And you probably spent most of your life just thinking that was your name, or or your old man kind of told you that, no, they're saying our name wrong. No, we, I knew from a very young age, actually. Everyone in my family, most of them go by Jabo, but my aunt, my dad's one of six, and my his younger sister went by Jabor. So we knew that Jabor was the proper pronunciation, but mm-hmm. we didn't mind that it was Jabar. My grandfather, who was Lebanese, would say Jabar. Mm-hmm. Everyone was fine with the fact it had been anglicised when my great-grandparents landed in Australia and my grandfather kept it anglicised as well, but... It was funny how it happened. I was Bridie Jaber for 18 years and then I left home and went to the Gold Coast and someone asked me my name and I thought, and I said, it's Bridie Jabor and thought it was, I think, a little bit funny to use the original or I was just testing it out using the Mm. actual pronunciation. But of course it's stuck because you tell someone what your name is, they believe you what your name is. And so I've been Bridie Jabor ever since and um, for many, many years now. It was very funny at my wedding because my ma- my wedding was in Grafton and it was a real collision of my worlds and there was my whole big extended family plus all my high school mates who knew me as Bridie Jaber. And then, uh, you know, my media colleagues, my Guardian colleagues, everyone that I've ever met since leaving Grafton, all there in one room. And the celebrant was an old friend of my dad's and he knew Jabor was the proper pronunciation, but Jaber's what we used. And, he's, and I told him to use Jaber because... You know, that's the name We're I grew up home. with. Yeah, yeah, I'm back home in Grafton. I'm Brady Jaber. And then he said it and I could hear the ripple through the congregation, of, like all these whispers. And afterwards there were so many people from The Guardian who asked me if they'd been saying my name wrong for years. <laughs> She's polite. She's polite. She didn't let us know. Now, tell me, was there drums at your wedding or you don't have a Lebanese drumming band on hand in uh, the mid-north coast? No, no, no. We, we did not have uh, – not only do we not have a – Lebanese drumming band on hand, there are not 
many people, if any people on that side of my family with much of a musical note. Okay. <laughs> All right. So it was no Salim Mahaja wedding. No, no <laughs> nothing like that. Oh, the size of it maybe. There were a lot of people there. My family's huge, but uh, no other comparisons, no. So how does a uh, – I mean uh, – we were just sp- speaking before about this virus, and it sounds like you've got a lot of family who are, uh, I guess, health workers, emergency, frontline workers, frontline nurses. Workers, yeah. My my mum is still a full time nurse. My sister has just become an emergency nurse. My brother is an ICU nurse in Sydney. As we speak, treating he's at work treating COVID patients. He did, texted me this morning about it. Did they vaccinate him? Yeah, he got. <laughs> but you know what? Felt it was a little bit late. He treated people, COVID patients, on ventilators last year. So he was unvaccinated last year in the first wave. That was obviously pretty stressful for my family. And then when the vaccinations came, they didn't really get to him till April. And I kind of thought, is he not the most front of the frontline workers? Like, mm. why is this kid not vaccinated? <laughs> Even at the beginning, it felt there were signs, I think, that mm. it was a bit slower than it should be. Yes, um, I think everyone's kind of feeling that at the moment, maybe. If it's it's not a race, but we've definitely lost. Yeah, if it was a race, we have come last in the uh, OECD. Now, how does, uh, from, from you know everything you've just described here, you know, kind of multicultural upbringing, uh, Irish mother, Lebanese father, Grafton, predominantly, you know, everyone's heading towards working as nurses or working as frontline workers. How did you pick up a pen? What, uh, what led you there? What led you to this career now where you've had a couple of books published? Well, it's pretty it's pretty cliched, but I read a lot as a kid, which I think anyone who is in this industry says. Yeah, I was a big bookworm, so were lots and lots of people. I used to get in trouble actually at like 1am. My dad would be, uh, or before then, dad would be leaving for night shift and he would find me reading and I would get in trouble. <laughs> So there was that, but there was also, I think, more than that, there was, you know, I've always loved people, mm-hmm. always been hugely curious about people, loved talking to them, loved stories, was, and I think that that has played a bigger part in me becoming a journalist than me being a ferocious reader when I was young. And But I wasn't on track at all to be a journalist, actually. You know, when I was a teenager in Grafton, that world seemed very, very far away, and That was 2005, 2004. Even then they were saying the media was in the death throes. What, like 15 years ago? Well, the death of print, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And also it was just said over and over again, it's really hard to become a journalist. Like we thought it was hard 15 years ago. It is near impossible now. But so I just thought, oh, it's too difficult. I don't have have the connections really. Mm -hmm. Like I didn't know how to do it. And um, then when a few months before I finished school, when I was 18, I went in, I went to pick my siblings up. I was on break between, I think, trial HSC and real HSC. And the principal had left forms on the desk with the office ladies for a scholarship to Bond University. And it was a scholarship that, a journalism scholarship that came with a cadetship at the Gold Coast Bulletin. Mm-hmm. And um, the office lady said, Mr. Crooks, I still remember him. He changed my life in that way has left this out for you. Uh, so I thought, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll apply. And I was applying for everything. I also got shortlisted for an economic scholarship at the University of Sydney. So, wow. so my life could have been completely different. But I got this scholarship and it was the only journalism thing I applied for. I didn't apply for that degree in any other way. And it was because it came with the job, the cadetship, and it was earning money, which was awesome. And, um, yeah, went through the interview process. It was apparently pretty competitive and got it. Mm. And then that was it for me. I've only ever heard of two people ever on scholarship at Bond University. One of them is a good friend of yours in the shape of Rick Morton, 
Yes. Did you? And also, he said he 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 opted for Bond as well as a budding writer because of that cadetship with the Gold Coast Bulletin. There's no way either of us would have gone to Bond without that yeah. scholarship cadetship. Yeah. Right. So. It was a bit different for you because actually that's an ideal kind of university to attend, Grafton to the Goldie. You can kind of – you're not too far from home. Oh, it was still – it's way closer now because the highway's mm. finally been upgraded, but that was still in the heady days of um, Premier Bob Carr not upgrading any infrastructure for a decade. Yeah. So it was three hours, I think. Mm-hmm. Might as well have been 15 hours It was back point. when um, – yeah, back – I mean, it's a bit further north, but back in the days when that highway used to go through – you know, towns like Wulgooga. You know, yeah. you used to, you used to like everything's been bypassed now. That bypass is super recent. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah that, yeah. um, yeah. So it went, it went through Ballina. It doesn't go through Ballina anymore. Yeah, it went through Wulgooga. The, the Kempsey Bridge. It doesn't. Yeah, <laughs> that was that was a great little car park on the way up the coast yeah. and down the coast. And it doesn't even go through Grafton anymore. Yeah, right. It, it even bypasses Grafton, so it was three hours away. So I think I was, Rick was closer to Boona than I was to Grafton. Yeah. But, um, you know, from the minute I left home, I was, like, paying all my rent and all that yeah. kind of thing. And so the, the money was very handy. Who yeah. was the other person you heard? Who it was you two. That's you, you, oh, you yeah. two. That's, that's all I know of. And everyone else that you kind of hear about that went to Bond certainly weren't studying journalism either. So what was it like there? What was the feeling? Did it feel like you were in the spaceship at Bond? It's like it's it's not a sandstone university. It's more like a, you know, a very modern kind of uh, Gold Coast. It almost feels like a private school. With hindsight, yes, but yeah. I didn't know that at the time. I really enjoyed it. I really liked my teachers, but it is uh, the first time I encountered proper wealth, like yeah. real wealth, not just kids of lawyers and doctors, although there were a lot of kids of lawyers and doctors. I became friends with people who were heirs to multi, multi, multi-million dollar fortunes. Like it, some of it, it was almost another planet yeah. in some ways, their lives and how they lived compared, especially I think it's one of the, well, it's very obvious that it's one of the reasons Rick and I became so close. You know, obviously fellow travellers in attitudes and interests and all that, but also we were a very, very small minority of not well-off people at that university. Local scrappers. <laughs> That's, he, uh, <laughs> although he approached it differently. He was really funny. He writes in his book about how he went out to sushi and he'd never used chopsticks before and went out to Japanese with Bond. And all the Bond kids, of course, knew how to use chopsticks. And he was so paralysed that he just didn't eat, whereas I had a similar experience, except I just asked the waiter for a fork and didn't care. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's either the fork or the stabbing technique. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so I, I, I want to, I mean, you did a, you've done a lot of writing. You spent a bit of time at Brisbane. Brisbane yep. Times. What was the setup there? Was that your average share house in and out of the, the parliament kind of reporting? Yeah, well, I was in parliament for a little bit. I was working for Brisbane Times, so it was a news website. So I never worked for a newspaper again after I left the bully. Mm-hmm. I've been in online news ever since. And I actually lived with my sister up there. Mm-hmm. My sister and I moved in together sharing a like half a house. You know, yeah. there's Queenslanders split down the middle. Oh, yeah. And so th- the floorboards are still shared. So someone walking in there... House in inverted commas next door. You can hear in your house like they're walking in your house. But and everyone uses the same the same stairs into the house. Yes, there's just two doors at the yeah, front. Exactly, yeah, exactly, exactly. And it had been split very lazily that way. And then I lived, and then my sister moved to Sydney. She's my little sister, and I lived with another journo there for a while, and her husband in the same house. Yeah, right. And so what kind of lessons did you learn about the media? I mean, you said you went to university and everyone was talking about the the death rattle of journalism. And then all of a sudden you find yourself in probably the most journalist job you could get, working in parliament. 
and, and living in a, in, a, in a massive city. You know, I've never ever felt like I was more at the centre of the world and the centre of everything happening than I felt at the Gold Coast Bulletin. Yeah, right. That newspaper was the place where uh, I came in just towards the end of the massive Gold Coast property boom that drove, like it was a massive newspaper. It was the Gold Coast Bulletin was known as the cash cow of News Corp. There was plenty of money in the first couple of years I was there. Then it began to... All the footy teams were, franchises were developing. Yeah, so I was there when the Titans launched... Newspaper felt so vital and so important and it, we felt like it really mattered what yeah. we were putting out each day and that everyone was reading it and so that was actually the place that I felt most centre of the world and I learned heaps about journalism there. I had to do, you know, you're really thrown in the deep end then there I went, saw my first dead body. I saw a few dead bodies by the time I'd left. I went to fatal car accidents. I did death knocks and I was only a teenager. I was 18, 19 myself. So, yeah, so I did... Did all that kind of stuff and felt very much I was thrown in the deep end there. But it was very, very formative and I felt like – I feel like my formative years and what I learned a lot about journalism was learnt at the Gold Coast Bully and there were a lot of senior people there who were so experienced and who taught me so much as well. And then when I got to the Brisbane Times because it was almost, it almost had like a startup feel because yeah. it was a news website. Fairfax is going online. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I, I don't think I've ever – worked with such a concentration of raw talent is what mm. I did there. We were all like really, really young and and had just pretty much been given our first or second jobs out of journalism. Connell Hanna was the editor and he's a super, super smart man who, not in journalism anymore, which is a shame. So I, at both of those actually I felt centre of the world. And when I was going to Queensland Parliament, Anna Bly was Premier. I covered her election loss. I was there when Campbell Newman came in. So that it well, it felt like the eyes of Australia were on us then as Did well. Did you, you you just missed the floods? Yeah, yeah, I was on the Gold Coast when the floods happened, yeah, and, my, right. and my sister was living in Brisbane. Yeah, so the goal, it didn't flood on the Gold Coast at all, but it was on yeah. our doorstep. But you were there for the rebuild in Brisbane. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, can, can you tell us? I mean, obviously, we have a very different experience with uh, only ever as far as uh, our newspapers kind of. Nationwide appeal. It's always been online. Tell us about when you felt those endorphins charging in your brain when you dropped something onto the internet that went viral. And what was it? The first time you realized, oh, a lot of people are reading my shit right now. I think that the first thing I ever had that went viral was a story about a man being asked to move on a virgin plane away from unaccompanying minors. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that'll get them going. Yeah, and that causes like the big national debate and people read it out on the breakfast shows. Uh, Yeah, I felt a little bit removed from that as well. But I think the first time that I had something go properly viral and I did feel at the centre of it and felt like I was being watched and paid a lot of attention to was in 2013 when... I was at a press conference. Tony Abbott was the opposition leader and he told me to calm down. Oh, right. Have you seen this? No, I haven't. It went, it's still online. And it was covered in newspapers. It was covered online. They went properly viral because it was seen as an example of his misogyny because I kept asking him questions. And then he said, calm down. And yeah, it ran on all the news stations. It was all (laughs) over Twitter. Like it was like, and yeah, and then I was even like in the print edition of the Daily Telly. Yeah, right. How did your family feel about you becoming a, a, I guess, a public figure or at least a, a, someone who's part of, you know, the media. And then, you know, 
that sounds like a lot of people were running in to support you in that scenario, but you do kind of find yourself in the crosshairs as a journalist in this country right now, particularly working at The Guardian, like nowadays. How, how did you or, – or they always had faith that you can kind of uh, brush it off? Well, I didn't get heaps of support then. I did from work and stuff, but Andrew Bolt actually ran a column about me that said all these trolls on me and my 19-year-old sister at the time got attacked because of it and got told by – random people on Twitter that she should be raped with a whiskey bottle oh. or be my sister. So okay. that was also the time okay. that I came under the most fire. But, my, well, you know, my family definitely doesn't think of me as yeah. a public figure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they're proud. Like they're always they're, – my mum is always like so stoked when I'm on television. But And I think they must, they must be proud in some ways. But I also get made fun of a mm-hmm. lot, particularly by the – you know, my siblings that are nurses doing real work. <laughs> you know, my brother will be like, I'm off to my real job now. <laughs> Have fun on the computer. <laughs> See ya. <laughs> when did you realise you had a book in you? When I was reading a writing book called Bird by Bird, mm-hmm. and which is a very famous book, at advice on how to write. I think that I thought since I was a teenager that I would write a book one day and I just didn't know what it would be about. I was reading this book, Bird by Bird, and in it she had this line saying, you can write the first draft as if no one's going to read it Mm -hmm. because you do not have to show anyone this. And this big switch flicked in my head where I thought, I remember I thought specifically, I can write something that my parents aren't necessarily going to read. Yeah, right. And it was hugely freeing for me to write the first draft. And I put the book down like halfway through the chapter, walked downstairs in the place that I was living at at the time in Annandale and opened the computer and started writing. And that was my first novel. Really? Yeah, that's how it started. And once I started, I just kept going. In that novel, are we talking about the way things should be? Yes. You gave a voice to, I guess, uh, at that time, it was a bit of a, a media cliche, the millennial. And your new book actually is showing the uh, the end of that era. But the millennial was a kind of entitled avocado, yada, yada, smash dab kind of, I guess, archetype. That, that existed in, in, in the Australian media, in the conversation. Oh, still does. Still does, still does to a degree. It's even more humiliating for young people now, I guess, that they're kind of getting a bit older. and Exactly. They still <laughs> think that we're young and millennials are turning 40 and they're still going on with those tropes. Um, but you gave a voice to, I guess, that generation or at least – you know, uh, a certain demographic within that generation about the pressures, you know, you know, sure, we, we're not getting conscripted for Vietnam, but we do have the no, same. I did the boomers, really. Yeah, no, 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 that was the silent generation. But, you know, there are the, the same pressures and the same life. Do, do you want to tell us a little bit about that book? I mean, uh, I, I eventually want to get to, to your most recent uh, book, but tell us a little bit about that and, and, and how that resonated, which it did. Well, I thought it was received as a millennial book for sure and a, as a and I was 29 when it was published and I, I wrote it mostly when I was about 27. And so certainly it was received as a millennial voice. But I really thought that I was just writing a, a family drama mm-hmm. and that's what I was, wanted to get into. And I, I think of that book really as a love letter to my siblings. It has, I'm the oldest of four, I have a brother and two sisters and that was the same makeup as the characters in the book, even though the characters in the book are like far more awful than mm-hmm. my siblings. And it. I also really enjoyed, I didn't want to write likable characters. I never really enjoy likable characters. So I really enjoyed writing it as, you know, people who were difficult to like, but who were, had their own inner turmoils going on 
while also trying to relate to each other. So that's what I was thinking of when I was writing it. And it was also, uh, well, it was meant to be a twist on the classic wedding book as well. But, yeah, it was certainly received as a as a millennial voice book at the time because I guess it was just when millennials were starting to publish books when that yep. came out. When I compare you to Rick Morton, uh, you know, another great author that we've had on this podcast before and, uh, you know, one of the Diamond Tina Shire's favourite sons. <laughs> When I compare you to Rick, it's uh, it's interesting. Obviously, similar age, uh, similar story, similar education, uh, scholarship to Bond. But Rick kind of has this yarn where he's, you know, he's got this generations on the land. Uh, you know, probably can't even follow that family tree back. You, despite being a small town kid, have you know a multicultural Australian upbringing. Lebanese father, your mother's from the Free State of Derry. Yes, and now you've uh, you're married to a you know. Ingham Italian, what do you kind of find between these tropes and the rural divide and and the city? Because you've lived what many would say is a life that, oh, no, you only get that in the suburbs. You only get that kind of, you know, the multiculturalism, the migrant communities. It's funny you say that and bring that up because I found when I moved to Sydney, I was really surprised at how segregated Mm. I found it Mm -hmm. and how white I found certainly the parts that I was Told to visit. Around. Oh, told to visit. <laughs> <laughs> and the industry I was hanging around, or mm. in, obviously, as well. Uh, and I was, I'd always thought of Sydney as a lot more diverse than that, and it absolutely is. But, yeah, it felt quite segregated. There are definitely pockets that are really wide, and, though, and that wasn't like the way that I grew up. Mm. I did not feel like – it's certainly a lot of white people where I grew up, but it also felt – a lot more mixed as well and like we weren't all separated. Not enclavey. It's not enclavey. No, it no. wasn't enclavey at all grow, yeah. um, growing up in Grafton. You, it, it, it's interesting someone like you, Bridie, or uh, you know, someone like Rick or, or plenty of other, other kind of writers or, or journalists in Australia that kind of come from your average town. I know Rick doesn't. Rick comes from the outback originally. But you come from the average town and in this current media climate, your upbringing in Grafton is viewed as some sort of unique experience that we need to bridge the gap between <laughs> detachment. Because, uh, you know, we, we do have a, obviously a media class and a political class where, you know, we've got people like Angus Taylor moving to Goulburn six months before he gets elected there, uh, you know, inner city boy through and through. And there is an issue with how people communicate, be that media or politicians, with the bush or with regional towns. I imagine that's never been something you've you've considered, and 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 how do you deal with that kind of you know, th- those uh, reality checks that for for whatever reason you provide. You know, what's funny to me in Sydney, particularly because mm. uh, the Gold Coast and Brisbane, when I worked in media there, were always very well aware of the world outside of them and mm. the country outside of them. But uh, when I moved to Sydney, it's so funny to me that when they talk about getting out of the inner city mindset and the Sydney mindset, so often they bring up Western Sydney and they say we need more Western Sydney perspective or Western Sydney is the forgotten people, certainly undercovered, certainly worthy of uh, more stories and having their stories told. But, mate, Australia doesn't end at Western Sydney. Like whenever people say that kind of thing, I think, you know, and there's also communities further than Western Sydney (laughs) as well. Like I think, and I don't think that that's a perspective that comes from Western Sydney. It's the perspective that comes from inner city media when they're thinking that they should diversify or when they're being accused of being too insular. Yeah. 
it's yeah, it's Western Sydney that they look to, and I just think God that you could be looking so much more further than that. <laughs> Over the hill, Lithgow, even. Yeah, you yeah. know, you, you know, just west of Sydney, every single town's major employer is a prison. The thing that Rick said uh, when he was, I guess, deep within the um, News Corp machine was that he realised the detachment when we were talking about the GP co-payment during that psycho 2014 budget, the Razor budget uh, with hockey and, and Abbott. And he said he was trying to explain to his editors that that $7 co-payment was going to mean a lot of people didn't see the doctor and that they had no they had no fat to cut from their budget. People that don't smoke, don't drink, don't gamble, that was going to cost them. And they refused to believe him. They thought he was making it up. Have you, have you had a few moments where you're like, well, actually some of these people around me aren't in the real world. Occasionally, mainly when talking about schooling, but it's interesting that 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 that's Rick's specific experience and the thing that he remembers because I was in the budget lockup mm-hmm. with the Guardian that night when GP co-payment was one of the things that I think it had been leaked beforehand, but it was confirmed that night. But I was in there with a very small Guardian team as we realised the extent of the cuts in that budget and how brutal it was. It was also planning to cut people off the dole after six months, doing just these horrendous things. And Lifters, not leaners. Yeah, lifters, not leaners. And it took a little while for the media in general to cotton on to how harsh that budget was. There was certainly, it was covered broadly as a harsh budget, but sort of along that lifter leaner line. And then after a couple of a week or a couple of weeks, people began to realise how harsh except for Lenore Taylor, who was the political editor of The Guardian at the time. She's now my boss. And I'm not just sucking up to her because she won't listen to this. But she was pretty (laughs) much the first press gallery journalist to write out straight from the bat that night, this budget is terrible. Like Mm. this is a terrible, cruel budget. And she was one of the first gallery journalists to call that out. So certainly at The Guardian, I haven't really had to play that role at all because the Guardian is something that understands or tries very hard to understand disadvantage in different sectors of our society and, yeah, so and that's why I've probably had a lot better time at work in the past few years than Rick did when he was working at the (laughs) Oz. We couldn't have been in more different workplaces at those those points. I guess working in the Guardian you would have a, as as you just pointed out, you'd have a whiteboard with – a lot of things up top that would be at the bottom at other newspapers, namely housing, climate change, you know. Immigration. The, yeah, immigration. A lot of those. Indigenous these, affairs too. Indigenous affairs and, you know, um, a, a lot of uh, issues that, you know, some can write off as you just lefty, you know, in a city, lefty whinge, but at the same time are urgent. Do you think your time working at The Guardian as the bearer of bad news for a lot of people, the bearer of bad news that just wouldn't get covered anywhere else, has informed your new book, which is about, basically is about the millennial, exi- uh, I'm going to say this, existential crisis. You said that perfectly. <laughs> you know, I had never thought of that, mm. but you make a really good point. And I think certainly being tits deep in the worst news there is to deliver mm. each day and um, and – some very dreadful news, particularly when it comes to climate change. And also for me, like poverty is another thing that we cover a lot and I am very moved by. You know, that certainly probably contributed, although I hadn't put those two things together until now, that having to be in that daily news cycle 
probably does make me a bit more uh, cynical mm-hmm. than most people. But I guess I've been in that daily, I've lived in the daily news cycle my entire adult life, mm-hmm. actually. So I guess I don't know any different either. <laughs> yeah. Can, t- can we can we go into that book now? Um, you've just you've just published it. It's called Trivial Grievances. This is a kind of look at, at as we said, the uh, the end of adolescence for millennials and all the things that all, all of the hurdles that millennials are now facing that they've seen their parents face under very different circumstances. Yes. Yeah, so it's it's basically it's a book about going through an existential crisis essentially, mm-hmm. but the existential crisis for many millennials in their early 30s is happening in really different circumstances to generations before us. Doesn't necessarily make it more difficult or harder and I don't say that Millennials who have it hard, although, oh, my God, every single ABC radio host I've talked to has definitely tried to get me to say that. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, look, but it ended up at the beginning I thought it was going to be a book about, you know, general misery that people in their early 30s seem to be hitting about their life, not t- turning out the way that they thought, the markers of adulthood, stable job, housing, marriage, children uh, more out of reach for a lot of people than it's pre- uh, for more people than have previously felt. And I think certainly most of us looking to our parents, although not in my case, but I know broadly uh, people's parents usually owned houses by this age. They were mm-hmm. usually married and they had their families and they were in very stable long-term jobs. And that just, all of those things, apart from maybe marriage, quite difficult for our generation. So I thought the book was going to be about that. It turned out into a much broader book about having an existential crisis, the big questions of life, and what how how to get out of it, how to mm. get out of that malaise and misery, but also making the point that it's not such a bad thing to hit that phase of your life either, and you probably will hit it more than once too. Yep. And it's and it's a bit more than a quarter life crisis as well. Yeah, we're a bit old. We're a bit too old for the quarter life crisis. The quarter life crisis is just a shaved head. Yeah. Isn't it? <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, we're we're a bit old for the quarter life crisis, but it's still hitting. It was actually that was weird when I first noticed that with myself and with a few mates. I only wrote it as um, like a summer light life piece. You know, it's summer between Christmas and New Year's. There's no real news, so you write these like pieces about life. They can run at any time, aren't tied to the news cycle. I just wrote it as one of those, and that generally we have fewer readers around that time of year. And um, I, so this was this was for the newspaper for this for the Guardian. Guardian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It started out as an opinion piece about um, that people in their thirties are really miserable at the moment. Millennials in their thirties are really miserable, and I I wrote it and it launched on New Year's Eve or New Year's Day. Didn't think about it really. Went to bed. Woke up the next day. More than six hundred thousand. Ooh. Reads around the world. Wow, it was nuts. Yeah, yeah. That's when I knew I was on something. That was the warm hug I was talking about earlier. Yeah, uh, which unfortunately first came to you in the shape of just unbridled misogyny from <laughs> a politician uh, and an Andrew Bolt column. But okay, so you realised you'd struck a chord there, struck a vein, and then started mapping this thing out. Tell us the perspective that you're writing from. You're not. It's not not like your last book where you're kind of telling the story of someone. Uh, you're telling the story of you. Yeah, well, that was the scary thing about nonfiction. There's a bit of memoir in this. Mm-hmm. I've also interviewed people and there's a bit of philosophy. Like it's a funny kind of book, but it was definitely weirder to be writing about myself in this book. But I so I sold it to a publisher off basically like two pages yeah, of right. a 
sketchy outline and the book ended up being a very different thing. But I, so I got that book deal February 2020. The bushfires had just hit and I got the deal and I thought, great, things are calming down. The yep. news cycle's calming down. 20. <laughs> I'll just spend the next quiet few months working on this book. Little did you know, <laughs> two kids at home locked down trying to write this little book. Well, actually, <laughs> I had my second baby in the middle of all that. Okay. So I was pregnant during the <laughs> pandemic, giving birth, writing the book. <laughs> and there's this bit in the book that's about how you, you don't have to achieve anything and um, we don't have to turn our hobbies into side hustles and it's fine to just pass the time in a pleasant way and not be productive. And yet I knew the delicious irony and obnoxiousness of me saying that while also writing a book with a baby during a pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> and then you kind of, uh, you get to a place, I guess, at the end of the book where you're, there's a light, there's light coming through and, 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 and just, you know, just a way of reframing the way you think about things yeah. in this day and age. And then, uh, you know, I've, I, I've read and, uh, and heard you talk about this. That's all done and dusted. You've handed that book through, and then you have a life and death scenario, like not life and death accident up there in the beautiful north of uh, of Queensland. The book was done by that stage, and you had a car accident. Yeah, um, it was handed in, handed and I'd in. I'd even done my final edits. Like everything was ticked off. I think the book had maybe been was on its way to the printers when that happened. Right, and and it's almost like would have been a great little like last chapter as well. Oh, it would have been. I yeah. So I, I was. Um, I well, I'll have to explain. Obviously, for the listeners who didn't read about it, I was yeah in North Queensland in April, and I was in the back of a car. My husband was driving. My I was sitting between my toddler and my baby. We we're on the Bruce Highway, north of Townsville, and we got hit from behind by a semi trailer, and the car rolled three times. It was insane, and it slow motion. Yes. Yep. Yes. I think maybe the only thing in my life that has ever happened in slow motion, it happened in complete slow motion. I put an arm in front of each of my kids and braced, like that was going to do shit, but whatever, yeah. and braced. And it. And I realised, you know, the wind. The first thing I remember is the windscreen just smashing and yep. me looking at it and being like, oh, no, and that's when I, it clicked with me, we're in a car accident. And then we were upside down. I thought it's rolling and I was thought, don't roll again, don't roll again, don't roll again. Then it rolled again. And I thought, don't roll again. Like it was this real slow motion, don't roll again. And then we rolled again. But that was all in a matter of seconds, but for me felt a lot longer. And um, and then we ended up rolling three times and finished right side up. Upright, yeah, right. Upright, by the side of the highway. And this woman came running over uh, and opened the door, the side my baby was on and said, I just screamed at her, ring an ambulance, ring an ambulance. And she said, I'm an off-duty paramedic. And I just said, get my kids out, get my kids out. And we were all conscious yeah, and fine. We ended up, we were all fine. <laughs> I couldn't believe it though. Like she, like when- well, what, what were you, what kind of rig were you driving in? You get hit by a semi-trailer and- Holden, Colorado. Right on. With an anti-roll <laughs> bar on the back. And it was my father-in-law's because they live in, um, outside of Townsville. We were picked up by my mother-in-law. And as we got into the car, I said- why does Alan have this ridiculous car? It's so big. He doesn't need because he's a publican. He's not a farmer. I said, why does he got such a big car? He doesn't need this car. As we got in, and yeah, he needed that car. It saved all of our lives. Oh wow! And we got visited in the hospital because we all still had to go to hospital. They actually dispatched the helicopter because the triple O call was car hit by truck in a hundred zone has rolled three times. 
And usually yeah. that is a That's, grim scene. Yeah. And so they caught off, the road ambos got to us, they caught off the chopper when they realised we were all conscious and breathing. We all we still got taken to hospital and we were visited by multiple doctors and nurses because it got around the hospital. Yeah, right. There was this family in this accident and they were all fine and people came to talk to us and ask us, like, how are you? And they just, every... All of them just kept saying, we never see this, we never see this, we never see this. <laughs> oh we never goodness. see everyone fine. Wowee. How, how did the kids take that? I mean, I mean, the baby obviously is, you know, that's going to be a story the baby will hear about. But your three-year-old, conscious the whole time. He ended up having the best week of his life because his brother ended up in hospital, was fine, but ended up in hospital for five days uh, just for a few different reasons that weren't to do with the accident. And... um. And so we were staying in a hotel in Townsville. My brother, when he got the call about the accident, booked his tickets to Townsville the next day. So his uncle was there. His little brother wasn't around to annoy him. He was staying in this hotel in Townsville. He just had the best week of his <laughs> life. And then when I talked to him about it, because I was still talking to you know, he's three. He's old enough kind of to realise what's going on. So I had a few conversations with him and he'd bring it up because my shoulder was broken. And, um, and he, so was that the only real? That was the only of, real injury. I had a broken shoulder. That's it. Out of everyone. In out the of car. everyone. Yep. Yeah. How wow. how crazy is that? <laughs> and so it got strapped at different times, and he didn't like it when my shoulder was strapped, and he would ask me to take it off, and I'd say no, my shoulder's sore. And that's when we had the conversation. He said why, and I said because of the car crash. And he said the Ute. I said yeah. He goes the Ute broke. I said yeah, the Ute Ute did break. I said then what happened? And he said, Daddy got an owie because my my husband had like. Uh, just blood on his knuckles from the windscreen. But because it's blood, like toddlers are obsessed with that. And I said, yeah, yeah, your dad got an owie. And then I said, and then what happened? And he's like, and then I rode in an ambulance. Yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> so Fun. the whole thing's just an adventure. Like yeah. kids don't have a comprehension. This is what I realised. Kids don't have a comprehension of what could have happened. Mm-hmm. What happened is what happened. That's yeah. just what happened. There's no – ideas don't enter their mind of what could have happened. And yeah. that is the most – that is a traumatic thing for me yeah. and my husband, what could yeah. have happened and what we kept being told could have happened. So that's why I think the toddler's fine with it. It, it is a shame we didn't get to put that in the in, in the back of trivial grievances, but you you have said you've you've kind of left that accident with a with a euphoric zest for life was the uh, was the words. Well, the, it was true euphoria yeah. that wore off, but I was in a euphoric state for two weeks. Really? Yeah, it's there's a science to it. It's something to do with the adrenaline, but I was dead set in euphoria for two weeks. You know, my shoulder was broken. And I was stuck in North Queensland, not you know, with a few different things, but nothing could bother. Nothing could touch me during that time. It was the most amazing feeling. It was like being blissed out. Yeah. And but it also obviously puts everything. It sharpens up your focus in life, and certainly sharpens up life a bit and what's important. And I think that those kind of things stay with you, even though the euphoria wears off. And I'm back to getting annoyed by dumb things like a coffee order taking too long, but. There's still, you know, a part of me that is definitely appreciating things a bit more and holding on to stuff a bit more than I did before the accident. Yeah. And what sounds like a hell of a prank for everyone to walk out of. Yeah. Oh, just it's basically a miracle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's the unofficial last chapter or forward of uh, Bridie Jabor, uh, professionally Bridie Jabor in Grafton. Trivial grievances out now. Uh, It's been a great chat, Bridie. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much.